Greetings and blessings, saints. Welcome to the Revelation Decoded Podcast. I'm your host and teacher, Gil Maza. We are going through an epic study through the book of Revelation, unlike any you might have heard before. Did the first century Christians understand the book of Revelation when it was first written by the Apostle John? You bet. They understood it and acted on it, and therefore they were spared the greatest tribulation that could ever come upon the Jewish people and the cataclysmic end of the Old Covenant. Think you know the book of Revelation? Come and see. That's how bad it was getting. And then, you know, go to Acts 26. Acts chapter 26. You disagree with him, what did they do? They send the FBI after you. Well, the IRS. Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. Acts 26 verses 9 through 11 says so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Je- in the name of Jesus and now by the way this is Paul giving his testimony okay to Agrippa so he says uh, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth and this is just what I did in Jerusalem not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons having received authority from the chief priest, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I, as I punished them often, all in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged in them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Think about this for a moment. This is the Apostle Paul himself, a Jew of Jews, highly educated on his way up to becoming a chief priest or synagogue leader and he says this is what he was doing to the Christians. Can you imagine what he had to live with? After he comes to, he comes to faith and he realizes and he's open, his eyes are open to the faith what he must have had to remember and live with? That's why I think that's why he says later on you know Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of which what? I'm the worst. Why? Because he tortured and killed Christians. And in the name of what? The Jewish leadership. The unbelieving Jews of those of those days. Amen. Amen. So these particular unbelieving Jews claimed to be committed to God, but they you know, but were not true believing Israelites. They came from Satan's camp, the synagogue of Satan, which I'm going to clarify later why that, what that means. But uh, now, go with me. Let's continue to go through Acts chapter 14 and read. You'll now you're going to see all those scriptures that I put in there is going to be a long line of the unbelieving Jewish leadership and people punishing Christians throughout that entire time. Okay, Acts 14:19. It says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out to the city, supposing him to be dead. Acts 17, 5 through 8. It says, But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring him out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men have upset the world, have come here also. 
and Jason had welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that this, there's another king named Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received the pledge from Jason and the others, they finally released them. Verse 13. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So you see, it goes on and on and on and on. The chief accuser, by the way, of the unbelieving Jews was none other than Jesus Christ himself. And how we know that the synagogue of Satan refers to unbelieving and apostate Jews at the time is in John chapter 8. Go with me to John chapter 8. Starting at verse 39. John 8, 39 says this. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. But, that, but as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. Oh, they said to him, we're not born of fornication. We have one father and he's God. Well, was that a reference to? Joseph. Right? Mm -hmm. So Mary was, you know, her baby came from the Holy Spirit. But apparently that story got around, didn't it? Mm -hmm. They did a little homework. Found out that Joseph wasn't the dad. So now they're saying, hey, we're not the ones born out of wedlock here, buddy. Okay? <laughs> Drama. Then he said, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. What does verse 44 say? You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? For he, who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. So, when we hear the word synagogue of Satan, who are we referring to here? The unbelieving Jews of that time. The ones that not only denied that Jesus was Messiah and Lord, but then took the extra effort to try to destroy his church all these years, all the way up to AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. And even after that, after that, they would, they would gladly pile up uh, uh, tons of wood to burn Christians at the stake. They wouldn't burn them themselves, but they happily brought the wood. Yeah, they were still fighting it. Early Christian examples in history are rife with examples of satanic false witnesses by the Jews against the Christian church at that time. By the way, our Lord Jesus told them, everybody ahead of time, this would happen in Matthew 23. Yes. Matthew 23. 
In Matthew 23:34, it says, Jesus says, Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Then he says, So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come to pass in this generation. Well, do I need to read the rest of these Acts scriptures to you? Because they're all going to be instances where the Jews, the unbelieving Jews at that time, rose up and persecuted and punished any other Jew that put their faith in Jesus Christ. Because remember, who were the first believe who were the very first believers? The Jews. Why? Because salvation comes from the Jews. Jesus said, I'm coming here to save my own family, my own kids first. I come first to the house of Israel and then to the rest of you. And we talked about it last week, right? We're happy with the scraps we got. Because oh, yeah. no. the Syrophoenician woman said, well, even the dogs sit at the side of the table eating the scraps, Lord. And Jesus said, you know what? I like your style, man. You know, your, your daughter is healed. And so we are beneficiaries of now the promise that came to the Jews first and still belongs first to the Jews. They just have to accept it. Every promise in the Old Testament ever made to the Jewish, to the, to the nation of Israel, has been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is no other promise outside of Him to be fulfilled. There's no land promises. There's no promises of bringing them back. None of that applies because there is no location worship of God. There is no ethnic worshipers of God. Jesus said there's going to come a day when worshipers won't worship in this mountain or any other mountain on planet because worshipers will come and worship God in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4. So no need for me to read all these other scriptures to you but I do want to read 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 14 to 16 because this is continuing after Acts going on, getting closer and closer to that final time when John would be writing to the churches, when John would be warning them. And as you can see, there will be next time you read the epistles, you're going to see a thread, a thread of urgency, a thread of reaching out to every church you can imagine, reaching every Jew they could get their hands on and save them, even to the point where the Apostle Paul laments. He says, I would curse myself to go to hell to save all my Jewish brothers and sisters. I will do that. And so there was a, you'll see that from now on, that urgency. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 14 to 16 say this, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result, listen to this, that they will always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, this probably sounds like this is a horrendous accusation and it's anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish. But you can see from the scriptures that it's not coming from me. 
and it's only directed at those particular Jews of that generation, not all Jews for all time. So when someone in the Christian church mistakenly says that the Lord is punishing all the Jews everywhere for being Christ killers, they are dead wrong. Yeah, you're talking about that. No, that generation at that time, correct. Correct. And as you can see, they kept bringing it upon themselves. Jesus says, "You're going to pun you're going to crucify and torture my people to the point where you're going to fill up with the you're going to be guilty of the blood of all the prophets." Then Paul says to the point here, he says, um, "With the result that they will fill up the measure of their sins, always you know, but wrath has come upon them." So they are not just saying, "Ah, you know, I don't choose Jesus. I'll go on my merry way." They not only rejected Messiah, the promise of God through all the scriptures in the Old Testament. Jesus said, "You don't believe Moses. You don't believe you. You know you. You don't. You know you'd believe me if you believed in Moses, as I want to talk about later." But then he says, "All of that, you know, they, them are going to be guilty because they rejected him. They had him crucified, and then they went through and persecuted the church." Yes. Correct. They call that curse upon themselves. But look, this is these are the apostles Paul's words in verse 15. Who the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So who's Paul blaming for the death of Jesus? The unbelieving Jews. The unbelieving Jews of that time. Yeah, them and all the people that joined them, you know, even the people, the unbelieving people. So he holds them responsible, them alone though, not all Jews for all time. Exactly. Okay, to say that the Holocaust was judge, God's judgment on them, to say that all these, all this, you know, trouble and persecution is all God's judgment, that is pure, utter, balderdash. I think smokescreen or distraction. Sure, sure, sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, the thing about it is, though, that a very popular, though I believe false teaching today holds that all non-Christian Jews are true believers in the God of the Old Testament, and they, all that they need to do is just add the New Testament to their otherwise adequate faith and belief. But the New Testament itself is adamant on this point that non-believing Jews are not believers in God, but they're covenant-breaking apostates. They broke the command of God. As Jesus said to those who rejected him, the truth is there's no such thing as an Orthodox Jew unless he's a Christian. For if Jews believe the Old Testament, they would believe in Christ. If a man does not believe in Christ, he can't believe in Moses either. Okay? While the Jews held favored status throughout the ages as the people from whom all blessings to the entire world come forth, they too must embrace the vessel of those blessings. Jesus the Messiah. He and only He is the fulfillment of every promise ever made to the people of Israel. The same way that the Virgin Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, Zechariah, John the Baptist, Simeon, and Anna, they had to, they understood, they recognized and believed in Him. Other, and other countless Jews who recognized Jesus for who He was, there's not two separate salvations for Jews and Gentiles. Now, how can I say this? It's very simple. If you reject the New Testament, you reject the God of the Old Testament. 
Why? Because the Old Testament is the New Testament revealed, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. Amen. And it's the same God. Okay? Same God. So it's, it goes a little farther than that. They are in bad shape. Okay? They have walked away from the true God of the Bible. They have walked away in some distant abstract future when you know we get raptured up and we're you know feasting cheeseburgers and fries up in heaven and now the world goes to hell in a handbasket and now we have to go and try to save them and in the meantime by the way two, two thirds of all Jews are going to get destroyed according to the every timeline out there every current modern timeline really is that what we're going to wait for no I think that's more anti-semitic than us just claiming what the Bible says that those Jews of that generation were the ones responsible. No, God, the Lord wants us to go out and save them now. Exactly. Now. Yes. Yes. And so that's why such strong language from God to the, the, the to that church. They're, you know, the synagogue of the devil? How worse can they get? The synagogue of Satan? Well, you imagine if, if he showed up and said, you know what, you guys are like the church of Satan. They're like the church of the Antichrist, church of the devil. How'd you like to be called that? And now they've, re they've reversed their entire role to be called by Jesus himself a synagogue that belongs to Satan? That is tragic. It's horrible, horrifying for them. Now, here now is something that might have come as a bit of a surprise to this church in Smyrna. Jesus says to them, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you'll suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Verse 10. First of all, how many of you believe those 10 days were actually 10 literal days? No, it's not 10 literal days. It is a short time. In other words, it's not going to last forever. It's going to be a relatively short time. It's going to be a painful duration. But 10 days, just like a thousand years, is figurative language in the, in the book of Revelation. So it's going to be for a short time. And he, so he's saying, stand firm. Now let me ask you this. Forewarned is forearmed, isn't it? If you know that you're going to survive the next big hassle you come through, are you going to be able to handle it just a little bit better if you're absolutely sure you're going to make it to the other side? Sure, sure. We can, you know, when we do that, it's, it's easier for us. And so he's giving them a great gift. He's saying it's going to be a short time, but you're going to survive. You can survive this. You can do this. When Jesus says it, you might as well guarantee it. He's already shown. Oh, perfect. Shown in the finish line. I think this example reminds me of um, a test they did with the Navy SEALs years ago. These guys, you could ask them to do anything. They'll do it. Run 10 miles, okay? You run 20 miles, okay? You run 50 miles, and they'll do it. But one day they said, guess what, guys? We're going to get up tomorrow morning, and we're going to run as far as we can run. No limits. I'm not, we're not setting the time, the distance, nothing. You're just going to run till you can't run no more. Most of them didn't go past five miles. Wow. And they were as healthy as a horse. Why? 
Because they didn't know when it was going to end. They just had no, they didn't know. Yeah, the, the mentally they just were, they're like, you know, how far is this going to go? You know, how far is it going to go? Someone a little farther, whatever. But none of them reached the 50 miles, you know, or anything because they just didn't know. The Lord here is telling us ahead of time, you got this. You're going to make it. It's only a short time. You're going to be able to handle this. But my first thought when I read this was, what? Really, Lord? If anyone deserves to be raptured or spared tribulation, it would be a church that's doing exactly what you want them to do. Holding fast to their faith in the midst of a broken, corrupt, and satanic society. And you're going to allow them to go through this time of persecution and testing? These people are good. They're blameless. They're steadfast. What is fair about this? Nothing. No. Absolutely. No. There is nothing fair about this. The world, the world is not fair. Don't get ahead of my lesson, man. <laughs> but exactly right. Exactly right. By our own choices and actions, right? We live in a cursed and fallen creation where evil and human suffering affects every single one of us. While God may have made sin possible by granting us free will to choose, it is humanity who made evil a reality. Since creation, by the way, we have proven as human beings that we will never cease to think of newer and more imaginative and creative ways to inflict pain, abuse, rip off, and destroy each other. Great point. We don't deserve. We don't. It's not fair of His grace towards us. Uh, I, oh man, that's so, that's so good. Did you hear what he said? Okay, he says, if I get to understand correctly, okay, so it's not fair that these guys should suffer when they've done nothing to deserve it, but God's grace isn't fair because we have done everything we can to not deserve it. We don't deserve, right? And that's the, that's the whole thing about grace. Um, if you want to look at it this way, if I remember the, the example correctly, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. That's a good way to remember it. But that's it. Thank you, Wayne. That's a great, great um, illustration there. So we do, we've done everything we could. We don't need, uh, you know, God didn't do that. Now listen, think about this for a moment. If God decided to do what we think we want him to do about evil and human suffering in this world, then he'd have to remove the chief cause and source of man's inhumanity to man. And what is that? Man. man. Yeah. And I remember Walter Martin was having this great debate with this atheist, and this atheist said, you know what, I could do a better job than God, than God of the Bible could. It says, he says, really? He goes, yeah. He says, okay. He says, a uh, couple of minutes from now when the clock strikes 12, you get to be God. And then you decide what you're going to do about all evil and, 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 and suffering in the world. He said, what? He said, yeah. You get to be God at 12, exactly 12 o'clock midnight. So, clock comes around. Ding! 12 midnight. Walter Martin says, okay. You are God. Do something about the evil in the world. He says, okay. Boom. I'm going to wipe it all out. Walter Martin says, then, okay. 
Who's left? Who's left? Because if you want to wipe out the evil in all the world, you have to wipe out the possibility of evil throughout this world. And who, what human being is not capable of evil at any time, at any point? All of us. So, amen. So that's why God chose a little bit of a better way to redeem us as opposed to just wiping us all out because if you try to wipe out all the evil in the world, none of us would survive that at all. Make sense? So now, here, Jesus, now in a broken and beaten down and fallen world, where we know we are to set up His church. We are to live as His people. We are to spread His gospel to the ends of the earth until He says we're done. And by the way, nobody's going to figure out when that is. No matter how hard they try, I don't care how many blood moons there are, I don't care who has indigestion in Iraq or in, in, in the Middle East, we'll never be able to discern or figure out the exact day and time Jesus is going to come, no matter how hard we try. Bottom line is, he says, when I show up, I better catch you working. That's right. Exactly it. Yeah. Amen. I love it when the boss catches me working at work, and I'm gonna love it when he catches me working here if I don't go to him first, which is more likely as far as I'm concerned. So, <clears throat> where was I? Okay. Thank you. Notice that hardship and suffering, okay, does not give the Christian a pass and an excuse to set aside compromise and misrepresent the faith. Sometimes we look around and go, Lord, how could you possibly want me to walk a straight line, live a pure life in this horrid world? But he doesn't give anybody a pass just because they're suffering. He doesn't give anybody a pass just because life is hard. He expects us to obey him no matter what, like the church did in Smyrna. This church, okay, could have saved itself a lot of pain and hardship by simply acquiescing to the demands of the society of their time. Heck, go in, burn a little incense, say Caesar is Lord, and then go outside and fall on your knees and repent. I think that's how a lot of us, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's what I do. I'm a coward. I don't think so. I, I, hope, I really hope that if the time came, I, I, I'm going to stand firm. But you know what I mean? Here, they could have very easily justified, hey, so what? Better to beg for forgiveness than ask permission, right? They could have justified this a million ways, but the Lord says, I know your trouble, I know your pain and your poverty, and you're so rich because you are standing fast when you could very easily make life better for yourself. There, you know, but what message would that have sent if they had done that? Oh, the same message it sends now when we compromise. Their faith isn't real enough to be trusted enough in the worst of times. What does this faith offer us, the world says, when it can be set aside even for just the necessities of life? Where's the trust in God they preach, teach, and boast about? We walk around telling people they can trust God, don't they? We testify to the faithfulness of God, what He did in our lives. And then he watched, the world watches us compromise and go, well, what happened? Jesus even says, be faithful unto death to them. Uh, I'm thinking maybe he expects a little too much from us. No? No? There's no temptation. 
Um, there is now no temptation. Now there is now therefore no temptation. Common command. Common command. Yeah. Which I'll forgive me. That he has not given you a way. God is faithful and will provide a way to escape. Amen. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you the truth. Every time I've fallen into temptation, I remember when he warned me, man, he, he warned me, but he even put stuff in my way and I still did, I still climbed over everything to get to what I wanted. Even with the road rashes, you can look up. Even, yes. Yes. That's why um, I remember, I don't remember who said this, but they said, you know, uh, people are going to have to climb over Jesus kicking and screaming to go to hell. Yes. They really are. They really are. He always does put an obstacle in the way. We just are persistent people. But this depends on what we truly believe is important. Are we going? How are we going to survive? Is, I'm sorry. Is it important how we're going to survive this momentary, temporary, short life on earth? Or is it going to be more important where and with we spend our eternal existence? Jesus says eternity is infinitely more important. He says we receive the crown of life. And the writer, the James, the writer of the book of James, knew all about it. Go with me to James 1. James chapter 1. Here is the words that were that uh, that the Lord echoes right here. It says, "Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love Him." Beautiful. In fact, let's go to that same chapter. Go to verse two. I think this deserves a read. It says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I love that. It's a great promise. Finally, we're told by Jesus that the faithful Christian who overcomes opposition and temptation shall not be hurt by the second death. The fact that this was originally said to the first century church helps us to understand the meaning of another passage in the same book, Revelation 20 verse 6. Go with me in there real quick. Now, I'm going to warn you ahead of time that what I'm about to share with you is going to put a wrench in what you believe the second death is. Or the first death for that matter. Revelation 20 verse 6. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with them for a thousand years. Now, this states that those who are not hurt by the second death are the same who partake in the first resurrection and that they are kings and priests with Christ, correct? Necessarily, therefore, the first resurrection cannot refer to the physical resurrection of the end of the world as promised in 1 Corinthians 15. There is going to be a final ultimate resurrection. The last one, where we inherit our spiritual bodies, 
we now are, our bodies are not controlled by the flesh, but they're controlled by the spirit. Okay? But there is another type of resurrection we have already experienced. Well, you're on the right track, Neil. I want to do this carefully so you guys, so I don't lose you guys. So it must refer to what Paul clearly taught in his epistle to the Ephesians. And he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us what? Alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with them. The Christian in every age is a partaker of the first resurrection to a new life in Christ. Having been cleansed, cleansed from the sin of the death of Adam, he has eternal life and has not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Remember when Jesus said that in John chapter 5. You have already crossed over from death to life. So as far as the Bible is concerned, you have already experienced one resurrection, a spiritual one. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this point home in space so that you don't think I'm falling off the deep end of the world. Go with me to 2 Corinthians 2.17. You might remember this one. 2 Corinthians uh, 2.17, yes. No, it's not 2.17. It's going to be 5.17. I'm sorry. Let's fix that. 517. I'm going to fix that right now. Listen to this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us through himself, through Christ, and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. So we become, as believers, we become new creations in Christ. We're no longer Jew, Gentile, slave, free, Greek, nothing. We are new creations. Go with me to Galatians 6.15. And again, making a direct reference to the old covenant of circumcision, he says here in verse 15, he says, For neither circumcision anything, or uncircumcision, but a new... I'm sorry, for neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So he sees us completely remade from the old. Okay, that's only the tip of the iceberg there. Go with me to Ephesians 2. Yes, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. Yes, we no longer as Christians we are no longer identified by culture, ethnicity, or location. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth from wherever we are. Ephesians, Ephesians two verses one through five. It says, "And you were what dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience." Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now, take special note, the sons of disobedience and the children of wrath is a reference to who? The synagogue of Satan, the unbelieving yeah. Jews. Okay? 
Because he's talking directly about them. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgression, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the, uh, so the Bible sees us as being resurrected from the dead already, spiritually. Romans, uh, Romans going to be uh, my final one because I could go forever on this particular uh, where it talks about us dying and coming back to life again and being born again and being baptized to, into our death and being raised to new life. There's all kinds of more, but this one should be a definitive one. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who what? Died to sin still live in it. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been what? Baptized into his death. Therefore we have been buried with him. In fact, that was the exact verse. Buried with him through baptism unto death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in how? In newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, therefore we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we will no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ... We believe that we shall also what? Live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, when Jesus says to this church, Right? You don't have to fear the second death. It's because we've already experienced the first one. Plus, there's nothing that we can do to separate his love for us in Romans 8, 38, 39. Amen. Amen. No, not height, nor death, nor any kind of dimension can separate us from the love of God. So there's many, many, many more here to see. Okay? But the idea is ultimately that we have experienced our first resurrection spiritually. We have been... Dead, dead in our trespasses, alive in Christ. The lessons from this church are plain to see. The church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages will see persecution and hardship from those who oppose the teaching of the scriptures and resent us not going along to get along in an evil and sinful society. The name Smyrna comes from the root word myrrh, which is a fragrant resin that is harvested and dried. Remember that the three kings brought Jesus the equivalent, literally, of embalming fluid. A baby. Why? Because they recognized he was to be a sacrifice. Myrrh becomes very fragrant when it's crushed. In the same way, Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane means a place where the olive is pressed or crushed. When crushed, the olive produces its fine oil. So Jesus in the garden was pressed and crushed. The anguish crushing his soul he even bled drops of blood out of his own sweat pores, sweat glands. But the outcome was a sweet oil of salvation for the entire world. And here, it was God's will, right? 
not his will that prevailed. So he even understood that God's will was going to happen and he was either going to be on the right side of it or the wrong side of it. Smyrna, for a season, for just 10 days, for a short time, would be also pressed and crushed and the aroma of the faithfulness of these saints would be pleasing to God and a testament to his faithfulness forever. Isn't that gorgeous? <laughs> it's awesome. Now, a little historical side note and tidbit as I close you out. There was a man, a bishop named Polycarp, who was actually a, a disciple from John, and John had set him up as the bishop of the church of Smyrna. Roman soldiers came to his house to arrest him publicly for denouncing the evil and simple practices of Rome. He was ordered to burn incense to the emperor. Polycarp is recorded as saying on the day of his death, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. Polycarp then went on to say, How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that's prepared for the wicked. Wow. Polycarp was burned at the stake and was pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. Whether this is true or not, I don't know, but I want to believe it's true. They kept trying to light him on fire and he wouldn't light. So every time they tried to light him up and it wouldn't burn, that's where they stuck him with a spear till he finally died and then he was consumed. I, many people say that's true. I want to believe that. I don't want to believe, I, not because he died, but you know, he believed and all the way to the very last moment. In his farewell, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. And therefore, he became the very first recorded martyr in the history after Acts. Uh, no, no, not before Stephen. This was uh, this is after the New Testament. That you know that 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 ter that uh, that time. Stephen was the very first martyr, but he's the very first martyr after after that that it was recorded. Oh, that was because yeah, post yeah, post New Testament his, uh, church history. Someone of his exact same time wrote that it wasn't a man burning at the stake, but it says it was. Uh, and this is I know it's a little weird, but he says, but this was basically bread cooked to glory for the glory of the Lord. That he was baked like a bread that was that was a pleasing to the Lord. So. Um, any final thoughts, comments, or questions as uh, as we close down tonight? Pretty intense stuff, isn't it? And we got seven. We got five more churches to go. <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm getting out of this. I, I hope you're getting. If you're getting half of what I'm getting, um, it's a blessing. What I'm learning as I go through this. Let me close you off with the word of prayer. Oh, Father, we praise and thank you for this magnificent witness throughout the ages, Lord, of this church in Smyrna, who stood fast, Lord, uh, pressure all around, financial pressure, hardships, persecution, being attacked for what they believe, Father, not being able to walk freely, having their property stolen or destroyed, Lord, not being able to buy or sell or trade or be able to provide for their families, yet they stood firm in their faith and testimony, Father, and they still managed to keep their light of their church burning. 
We're so grateful for that witness, Father. And we ask that you give us the strength to do the same, Father. We are constantly under pressure by society, Father, to fold, to compromise. It's just a, a small moment of compromise, you know, and then we can just beg for forgiveness later. But the world has already seen too much compromise, Father, especially from your church here in this world, Father. And we need to stand firm, Lord. And I believe that the same Holy Spirit that preserved them through all those things and brought them to their reward can do the same today for us, Father, and then some. And it's not as bad as it was exactly then, even though it might get that way. And throughout the ages, it has gotten that way for many societies, many who suffered the same way the church is going to suffer, Lord. Help us to be those witnesses, those lights, Father, those lampstands on top of a hill, shining brightly, Father, so that even in our troubles and tribulations, even in our hardships, and, and um, no matter how hard this world becomes for the Christian, you do not give us a pass in obedience to you. We are to be faithful unto death that we may want and desire the crown of life more than anything else because life is temporary but eternity is forever. Father, we thank you. We praise you. And again, lift up all our sick and infirm, those who need you desperately, whether emotionally, uh, um, mentally, physically, and spiritually, Father. And thank you so much for another wonderful night where we just sit here, Lord, and pour through your word. Praise you. We love you. And we thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. God bless you, saints.